Paul in his swan song, just as he's about to die, writes to a Timothy that he hands the mantle to, and he says to be diligent to present yourself approved to God a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God, or the word of truth. And it's important to note that somewhere in there, there's a strange statement that need not be ashamed. This tells me that there are those who perhaps need to be ashamed, and he tells us under this pretense that they are rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul, as a tent maker, uses the term, by the way, rightly dividing is to properly seen, to take two things, and what's important about tents is that they would be watertight. Uh, you don't want to be out on a rainy night and have a leaky tent. And he uses that term here in regards to scripture. That you would take the situations of your life and take the proper fitting texts, scriptures, and properly seen them. And that's the term he uses. Peter teaches us that from the moment we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he says in 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you would grow thereby. There are a lot of things that we think could help grow us that the scripture doesn't necessarily tell us, but one thing we can be sure of is that Peter says that the pure milk of the word, which by the way isn't a sermon, but the book itself. And you say, well, if I read the Bible, I don't get everything. Well, of course not. God doesn't want your brain to explode. But what he does want is to give you what you need for the moment. And for a baby, by the way, one thing we've learned is that babies are hungry, and they're hungry a lot. But God has designed a specific food for a baby that is perfect for their growth. When we first, um, we have two children, as you're aware. One is adopted, and one is biological. The biological child, uh, very different from the one we've adopted in many ways, just about almost every way. But uh, we received our adopted daughter at 13, I'm sorry, 15 months, and she had been on a very strict regimen of very, very little food. And so when she first came to us, as you can imagine our family, uh, she would eat until she threw up pretty much every meal because she just didn't know how to stop. She was voracious, and she had never seen that much food, and she was in absolute delight over it. She'd take noodles and stick them in her hair, and she'd put them everywhere, and then she'd pull them and she'd throw them on the floor, and she'd dig them up and try to eat them. Uh, and all of that to say that it isn't that we naturally desire just um, the pure milk of the word, the same way that a baby doesn't necessarily desire only the pure milk that would be given to that child. The child will stick just about anything in his mouth. And it's a parent's job, to be honest, in the beginning, to make sure that they're not sticking the bean and the Cheerio and the whatever in their mouth in an inappropriate time. Or for that matter, the piece of toy, or the screw, or the dead cat they found lying on the street, or whatever it is. But it's amazing, as a child, anything goes in the mouth. And in the same way, when we first come to Christ, it is amazing how we're quick to consume anything that comes our way. It doesn't matter how fancy the talk is, it doesn't matter that, if we're going to be honest, truth be told, if somebody actually sings their song and dances their dance well enough, we'll just stick it in our mouth and assume it's food. But what Peter tells us is you need the pure milk of the word. In Hebrews chapter 5, Paul, or I should say Paul, because it doesn't say Paul, the writer of Hebrews, who I wouldn't necessarily say is Paul, tells us this as he's rebuking a group of people who should have grown up by now. And he says, by now you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the first or primary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Because for everyone who partakes of milk, alone, is unskilled in the word of righteousness, he's a babe. Now, as a baby, we don't expect them to be remarkably skilled. We expect them to grow. What he tells us is, as you grow in your walk with Christ, 
you learn how to become skilled in the word of righteousness. To the point where it tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that when we grow up properly, that we, and we'll see it in several books, by reason of use have learned through God's word how to discern right and wrong. Paul would say as he is leaving the Ephesian elders in Miletus in chapter 20 of Acts verse 27, I want you to know I'm innocent of the blood of all men for I have not hesitated or shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says I'm innocent because I've given you all the word. So my desire over the next however weeks it would be is to get us excited about reading the whole book. A book a week uh, from this of our 66 books that are in the Bible, you're picking off one a week, starting in the New Testament this week with the Gospel of Matthew, and then each week at the end of it all, we address it with the idea of kind of going, okay, did we, were we able to pull these things out of it? Uh, and then we move to the next book. So let me start tonight with the idea again of an overview of the entire Bible, very, very cursory overview, and then to kind of get your mouth wet, if you will, for the, uh, the actual uh, New Testament. The Old Testament, starting there. 77.41, or if you will, 77.41% of the entire Bible is the Old Testament. That means over three quarters of the entire Bible is the Old Testament. It stands from the creation of the world to the restoration of Israel. Now, I have to do a little bit of math on that. Now, there's always going to be argument on when the world began. But for the sake of the benefit of it, the Jews have a calendar that they believe when they actually read the Bible, they read when God said a day, strangely enough, they thought he meant a day with that. So with that, what they would tell you is that this very day, that we would know as the 14th of February, 2018, for them, actually, they, next, they don't do the ADBC thing because they're really kind of not into the Jesus thing on that. So they would actually tell us that today would be the 29th of Shivat, the year would be 5778, 5778. In other words, they would tell you that the world is 5,778 years old. Now, again, this very day. If I were to subtract from that 2,018 years, that's the amount of years, of course, we see as AD, that will give us this splice, if you will, between AD and BC. Now, let me put it in the simplest sense. What I'm trying to do is cover two things. What kind of property is covered in the Old Testament, first of all, and what kind of span, time span, are we talking about? If we're looking at, in essence, the, the world beginning, from a Jewish perspective, if you will, uh, I tend not to disagree, 5,778 50, years ago, and we take it to the end of the book of Genesis alone, that takes us when the family of Israel enters into Egypt before they become slaves. It was 30 years, actually, where they weren't slaves. If we're going to do a rough, give me an idea, a sort of a super rough estimate of time, we're looking at roughly 2,000 years. 2,000 years between the time God created the world and the time when this family, and to 70 people, enter into Egypt. Which means from the book of Exodus, well, we'd say this, from the Exodus itself in Exodus 12, which is when Israel leaves Egypt to the end of the time span of the Old Testament is a thousand years, basically. If we really look at the Exodus at roughly 1400 BC, 1440, and we look at Malachi, the last book written at roughly 400 and something BC, it's roughly a thousand years. In other words, every book but the first one, the first one is roughly 2,000 years, and every other book added together is roughly a thousand years. 
of the Old Testament. That kind of gives us an idea. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, I mean, not just in our order, but also chronologically, which is in the 400s BC, and then from that time it is silent until the, when God visits an older woman because she's going to give birth to John the Baptist, which, of course, is the beginning and essence chronologically of the New Testament. So, the events then mark from creation to Malachi's prophecy in 430 Genesis BC. Now, if I were to put it in geographically, basically think of it this way, the land of Israel as we understand it, and go east. What will happen ultimately is that Israel, once, once receiving the land of Canaan, that's of Israel as we know it today, from there then, they will um, stay in the land, they will prosper, but ultimately they'll be deported, and then they'll come back and rebuild. And that's basically the entire super easy historical background behind the time of, of Israel. Now, for what it's worth, then, they wind up all the way out to Iran today. That would be the area of Babylon. Iraq would be that of Assyria. Iran would be that of Babylon. As a matter of fact, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh, and the capital of Iraq is Nineveh. That was pretty easy. So there you go. Now, they haven't even changed it after all these years. In other words, if you think about it, we're covering roughly about a thousand miles. Because it's basically the deportation to Babylon is roughly 900 to 1,000 miles. So, let me put this into a basic nutshell. The Old Testament spans roughly 3,000 years. 2,000 of it given to Genesis, 1,000 the rest of the books combined. Does that sound fair? It covers roughly about 1,000 miles between the area of Israel, and again, I'm giving you very loose numbers, to that of Iran today. Basically, that's our basic idea. Now, the Old Testament is actually, the way we have it, is not necessarily the same order you would have it in a Jewish Bible that's called a Tanakh. It's broken up into three sections, the Torah, the Navi, and the Katavi. But for us, we have it in a very Greek mindset. And it actually helps us. The first five books are called the Torah for both. Torah, by the way, means teaching. And might I say that in both cases, there are three predominant focuses. Each section would take one of those predominant focuses. The first be that of teaching. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those books, as we know them, or the Pentateuch, because that just means five books, those are what we would call the Torah. That's our first five books. That's our first section. And the predominant focus is teaching. There's certainly narrative and historical accounts in there, but the focus is on teaching. Matter of fact, we get the whole Ten Commandments listed twice in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and we get the whole sacrificial system and the ceremonial law all in the book of Leviticus. Book people don't normally like to read because they're like, it's a manual for things I don't do. I love it. But then I love every book in the Bible. So if you think about the first five books, it's primarily teaching, and that's what the word Torah means. Are you following me? That makes sense. Now, from that point on, or at least for the next 12 books, we have the historical books. Historical because the predominant focus is on a historical narrative. That's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All of those books tell us the story from getting into the Promised Land, to getting kicked out of the Promised Land, to going back to the Promised Land. That's basically what you have in that period of time. So, 27.37% uh, of the Bible is the historicals. For what it's worth, 20.43% of the Bible is those first five books of the Torah. So, Israel and the Promised Land, they're there for roughly seven and 900 years, because the kingdom splits, top is deported first, the deported restored. The remaining 22 books of the Old Testament we would call poetic prophetic books. The primary emphasis there is poetry and prophecy. 
It's 29.61% of the entire Bible, 22 books, and it's from Job to Malachi. So here's how it basically works. The Old Testament, teaching, historical, poetic, prophetic. Did you get that? Teaching, first five books, we know it as the Torah. It means teaching, it's pretty safe. Historical, again, the next 12 books, and then poetic, prophetic. And that's our entire Old Testament. How do you like that? So let's go to the New Testament. Now let me ask you, just this is, as teachers would say, this is reinforcement. Roughly how many years, and very, very roughly, how many years does the Old Testament cover? Roughly. 3,000 years. Of those 3,000 years, how many of those years are in the book of Genesis? Roughly, very roughly. 2,000 of them. Which means then roughly how much is from the book of Exodus to the book of Malachi? 1,000 years. Get that? Roughly how many miles does it cover? 1,000 miles. From Israel, and then you go east. You all with me? Beautiful. New Testament. We cover a much smaller period of time, but then we also cover a much smaller area. 22.59% of the Bible is the New Testament. It's not even a quarter. If we dare say it's from the announcement of John the Baptist's uh, mother's pregnancy in roughly 5 B.C. We can talk about that at another time. To the time of John getting the revelation in roughly 95 A.D. So in other words, the entire New Testament in its coverage covers, in essence, a hundred years. That's it. Look at what you've learned already. Geographically, we start in Israel, and this time we go west. We go through Turkey, and we go all the way to Rome, which is, in essence, roughly 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles. The general area covers the Middle East through Europe. Israel heads west. So did you get that? So, the Old Testament, Israel goes what direction? East. In the New Testament, Israel goes west. There you go. And we should be very thankful, because, of course, in that time, that gets us to here. Because, praise God, Paul went into Europe, and that's where we are today. Y'all with me? Now, do you remember those three basic sections without looking down in the Old Testament? Teaching? Historical? Excellent. Poetic, prophetic. We will find the same three in the New Testament, just in a different order. The first five books of the New Testament, we would call historical. Because if you think about it, it's the story of Jesus, that's the first four, that's the Gospels, and the book of Acts. That is our history. Five books, for what it's worth. I'm going to tell you the Gospel it has for that weather, something like 64,767 words. Not that you need to know that. But again, if we're going to cover, in the historical portion, we start with the announcement of John the Baptist's mother pregnancy. It ends in the historical passages with Paul being in his first imprisonment. That's how we actually get the book of Acts. It doesn't even have a sense of an ending to it. It's just sort of like Paul, who was, he was in a rented house because he was in essence grounded. He was on house arrest and nobody was forbidding him from receiving people and sending them out. In other words, God grounded Paul so he could write the epistle, well, at least five of the epistles which should be thankful for. With that in mind, he was in prison from 60 to 62 A.D. So if we go with that map, that means, in essence, again, very roughly, the historical passages cover roughly 70 years. From the time where Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was declared, well, 
Zacharias' dad gets to that. It's the announcement you're going to have a baby to the time where Paul's in prison. That's our time. In our teaching portion, we have what we would call the epistles. It is 21 books. It's only, even though it's 21 books, do you realize it's only 7.36% of the entire Bible? That includes Romans and the two Corinthians. That includes Hebrews. All of those ones that you might think are relatively long, not a comparison to the Bible. So we have those. In the New Testament, we have those first five books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Then we have the epistles from Romans all the way to Jude, and then we end up with our last book, and that's our poetic, prophetic book we know as Revelation. And we're estimating, because nobody knows for sure, but that basically John got that Revelation roughly in about 95 AD in Patmos, when, because he was an old guy. Now, I don't know if you've heard this, the Mishian, when he was the emperor, tried to kill John by boiling him in oil. Have you heard this? But he wouldn't. He couldn't kill him. And we've joked about that, and we say that was our first friar. All the, uh, anyway, sorry. But, uh, yeah, so they told him, out, what do you do with a guy when you can't kill him by boiling him in oil? You send him to a prison island. You know, back then it wasn't Australia. Back then it was Patmos. To this day, it's a very small island, and I mean small like Iona small, uh, and it has 365 little chapels on it, all of which they say was where you know, John was. But with all of that said, it's 1.61% of the entire Bible. That's it. Now, that gives us our basic entire overview in a very simple nutshell. New Testament, first five books. What section do they fit in? History. History. Then, the epistles, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, so forth, all the way to, to Jude, all 21 of those books are, are what? Teaching. And then our last book is? Poetic Prophetic. Now, let me ask you, from this cursory overview, which one has the most books? In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, which one has the most? The Poetic Prophetic, 22 books. If you think about it, it's more books than it is the rest of the Old Testament combined in regards to the amount of books. In the New Testament, which one has the most? Teaching. To get that. Now look at the percentages if you wrote them down. In the Old Testament, which one has the, mo the highest percentage uh, of the Bible? Close. Historical is 27.37%. Poetic prophetic is 29.6. Still the largest section. 29.61. The New Testament, which one has the most amount of space? Actually, Now, are you with me so far? This is, again, all I'm trying to do is get you the idea, okay, so when I am looking at the first five books, though there is history, the focus is on teaching. That's kind of the idea. Now, what I want to do is take us now to that New Testament, and specifically now prepare us for the Gospels. There's the key in it. Now, do you have that, that information? And that should be on a handout as well. There you go. I'm take one of those two so that I can look at it myself to make sure I have, you have the same thing.
Anyone ever wonder why we have four Gospels and not one just big long one? There's something beautiful that God does in the in Scriptures. Well, there's a million beautiful things that God does in the Scriptures. But let me say one of them is God presents what seems to be irreconcilable paradoxes. These things that just, they just couldn't possibly make sense. How in the world did these things all fit together? Well, what happens is, God actually leaves you at the end of it all in a place where you actually are convinced he's right. I do like that. He takes those brilliant minds of individuals who think they're smarter than God and then stumps them. And then shows that he really knows what he's doing. So let me explain according to the Old Testament. According to the Old Testament, God had promised a Redeemer all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3. From the time of the fall, God had promised there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. And even before that, God had been laying out clues. And I start to look at who is it that's going to bring us back to Eden. Who's going to wash us clean from all of that filth and restore us to our right relationship with God? And God lays out four basic things I should be looking for. One, when God is speaking to David, God promises when David wants to build God a house. You realize it's the one thing he ever really wanted to do and it's the one thing he never got to do? He's like, one thing I've desired and that I will seek after that I would dwell in the house of the Lord in the days of my life. But there was no house of the Lord. At any time during David, he had a tent. He never said that I would dwell in the tent of the Lord. God, if I can have anything, I just build a house and we both move in. But God says, in the simplest sense, in 2 Samuel 7, you know what, David? You want to build me a house, but instead I'm going to build you one. And I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. And from your loins, from you, will come a king over all. And so I expect the Messiah to be king over everything. He is, in essence and simply, the king of kings. That that seems simple. Here's the problem. When you get to the book of Isaiah, specifically chapters 42 and 53, God makes really clear that this Messiah, this led like a lamb to the slaughter, must be the servant under all. So how do I take and go, how how can somebody be the king over all and the servant under all at the same time. That just doesn't make any sense. How do you reconcile those? But then, in Genesis 3, God promised that it would be the seed from the woman. He'd have to come from the woman. And it has to be, according to Ruth, a kinsman redeemer. A human being is the only person that can redeem mankind. So he has to be a man. And a kinsman redeemer, at that. A man who has come to redeem, or to ransom. But, In Ezekiel 34, God speaks a polemic against the shepherds of the day, who, by the way, were fattening the sheep at all to eat them. They were slaughtering the sheep and then abandoning them, so they were scattered like like sheep without a shepherd. And God says, I'm going to come down and shepherd them now, because I will be the good shepherd. It's one of the reasons why Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd in John 10, brings about quite a rabble. So how can he be fully man and fully God? Here's my problem. So I have these four things that seem irreconcilable. He's the king over everything, but he's the servant under everyone. He is fully man that's come to redeem, but he's also fully God, the good shepherd. See, what God doesn't do, and I love this, is, please hear me in this, is God doesn't demand your faith to actually ignite your intellect 
to make things that don't seem like they're getting put together to put together. What God actually challenges you to do with your faith is to broaden your horizon to have a bigger mass. So that what happens is I can say that he's actually 100% bold, and they say, well, how do you explain it? I'm like, I can't explain it, but I can tell you this. It's true. So what God does is he recruits four individuals, and from those individuals, he gives each one of them, through his Holy Spirit, the task of picking one of these specific things for that purpose. So, consider this. And again, this is only to get you ready for the, again, comprehensively, the largest section of the New Testament, which is the area of the Gospels and the Book of Acts. In those Gospels, consider it, instead of it as four writers for the moment, consider it as four directors. So, in a situation, let me say this, I'm a dad, 100% dad, I'm 100% a husband. I'm 100% a man, and I'm 100% a pastor. Those are just things that I am. And consider the fact that there could be a single event. In that single event, I am protecting my children. I'm trying to make sure that I'm stepping in the way of my wife to keep her safe. In the same way, I'm still seeking to actually to, to love on and invest in the church. And I'm trying to do it in a manly way, if you will. And you can take those particular situations. A car is coming speeding by. A maniac is coming by towards my family at that particular moment. I'm pulling my wife out of the road to protect her. I'm protecting my children from the man that's coming his way. And at the same time, I'm still seeking to teach people that are around me and invest in them. And if you were the director at that particular moment, you would focus as a father on me with my children, standing in the way of a person coming towards my children. If you were focusing on me as a husband, you would focus on me pulling my wife out of the street. And you realize the whole idea is all of those events are taking place at the same time. They're not contradicting each other. It's just what you're choosing to focus on. So when people try to point out, well, it seems like it says this in one gospel, it says this in another. Well, which one's true? My answer is they both are. What you have are four people shooting through four different lenses so that you can be absolutely convinced of everything that he claims to be. So by the time you're done with all four Gospels, you will be convinced he's absolutely every one of them. So I want to start with the first one tonight to prepare you now for the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. What do we know about Matthew? Matthew is actually not his original name. What do we know Matthew's original name? Does anyone know? It's Levi, or if you will, Levi. A very Hebrew name. Matthew, by the way, Matthäus, is actually is actually a very Greek name. What do we know about him as an occupation? He's a tax collector. He's not a, he's not a chief tax collector. We meet one of those in Scripture. That guy's name is Zacchaeus. What we do know is that he is a tax collector. And a tax collector was considered the most anathema individual. He was worse than the Gentiles as far as the Jewish party was concerned. And you know, you know why? Because he betrayed them. He was selling out his people for money. Now, whether he was from the tribe of Levi, which is fairly possible, which is the priestly tribe, what's clear is he sure knows scripture by the time we're done with this. One thing he does know, and this is brilliant about it, and this is one of my favorite things about Matthew, 
is that as a tax collector, he had to learn Roman shorthand, which means he could write as fast as he could speak. He had an endless supply of ink, writing material, quill, and things to write upon. And he was well aware and educated to the government of both the Jewish people and the Roman people. I think that's brilliant. Because as we look at this, one thing you start to recognize is God gives him the responsibility through the power of his Holy Spirit to record Jesus as the king overall. And there will be specific things, unique and beautiful and brilliant. But what do I know? When Jesus pronounces his polemic against the religious leaders, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites that you are, which, by the way, I'm sure that Matthew had his own share of problems with that. Was he writing it down in the Because what they call the Synoptic Gospels, the first three that seem to be so united in their purpose, they all have very distinct ways of being written, and it's very likely or very possible that the majority of this gospel is being written as it was happening. What a fantastic thought that was. Very likely that Mark, and we'll talk about him later, will be writing secondhand, interviewing somebody that was an eyewitness. Luke gathering all the information like a journalist. And John recounting the information 60 years later. Think that through. One guy immediately. One guy interviewing perhaps in the next few years, one guy recounting 60 years later, and one guy just gathering all the evidence that he can find from other people, and yet it is completely and absolutely a consistent single story. How beautiful is God. So my challenge you this week is if you're going to look at it, it's, and of course it's also an extremely Jewish book. You're going to find a fantastic amount of Old Testament quotes in it, and I'll talk about that next week. And I tend to think that perhaps, maybe, Matthew was of the tribe of Levi. You tend to name someone after a very predominant member of your family. He certainly understands the rites and rituals, and he certainly knows an awful lot of scripture, and he quotes more scripture than the other guys. So I want to pray for you and set you on your way. Because this week, I want to launch you into that. Next week, what we'll do is we'll review the concepts, that the major concepts of Matthew... And it's just, part of it is prepping you so that four weeks from now when we go through each one of those Gospels, we'll be able to look back and I'll be able to throw scriptures at you and go, just from your understanding of the person, the theme, and the focus, which one would you expect to find this particular scripture in or this story? You're going to be amazed how much you've learned in four weeks. And that's just the first four weeks. Are there any questions before we pray? Well, boom. There we go. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this amazing, beautiful account, as we open our hearts, Lord, to try to do something perhaps we've never done before, and that's to read through the whole Bible, I just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would actually be in this place where we would just we would get it like we've never gotten it before and I just pray Lord that these uniquenesses these distinctions would only further convince us of the very task you intended 
So Lord God, I just pray you'd have your way. Please tonight, prepare us. Give us, if you will, broaden our spiritual stomachs so that we're able to digest this. And prepare us now for this amazing journey in Jesus' name. I want to make a distinction because I think I may have said it wrong. It's the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is unique to the gospel of heaven. God is the rest. I want to make sure that that's the case. And this happens a lot these days. I'm trying to get my head back, but it's not showing up in time.